Hey, folks, welcome to the very first episode of the Speaking of Leadership podcast, a biweekly podcast that will help you grow in your leadership. I'm your host, Robin Ellingwood. I'm a leader with over 20 years of experience in churches and nonprofits, and I have a passion to become a better leader and to encourage other leaders in their leadership development as well. In each episode of the podcast, you'll learn from well-known and everyday leaders from all spheres of life, including pastors, entrepreneurs, authors, coaches, artists, parents, and more. As I interview them, you'll hear about their leadership journey and discover key insights that will help you grow as a leader. In this first episode, I had the amazing privilege of speaking with Ashley Island. Ashley is the formation and preaching pastor at Mars Hill Bible Church and the author of Humankind. During our conversation, Ashley talks about her new book, how its message applies to leaders, and what we can do to grow in anti-racism. I learned so much from Ashley during this interview. I hope you do too. All right. Well, hey, Ashley, thank you for joining us today. Just wondering maybe if you could share uh, a little bit about who you are for any of our listeners who may not be familiar with your story and your work. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me, Robin. It's a joy to be here. And for those who are listening who don't know much about me at all, I'm a formation and preaching pastor at Mars Hill Bible Church here in the Grand Rapids area. But uh, full-time, like really full-time, I'm a mom and a wife and a daughter and a friend, Um, but I did not start my time in ministry. I actually grew up in Houston, Texas, so I love Texas. I'm from the South, Um, spent some time in Los Angeles for my undergrad, and then graduated and went straight into human resources. So my very first career was in corporate America, and it wasn't until I was transferred to Chicago and started attending a pretty large church in that area that I felt called into vocational ministry full-time. And so I've been, yeah, I've been serving the church full-time now for almost 11 years. Um, So it's been a really beautiful journey, but I've I've also, in the meantime, um, between all of these different roles, wrote a book that came out this year. So I, you know, I would not recommend creating something in the middle of a pandemic, (laughs) but it sure did present a unique challenge and kind of a fun uh, challenge there. But um, I wrote about kindness. And so it's something I'm really passionate about us um, engaging one another in a way that reflects God's heart for how we treat one another. And so that's been fun as well. That's amazing. And yeah, I mean, you released the book several weeks ago, right? That's right. And um, it's a beautiful collection of stories. It's just beautifully written. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit more just about the big idea behind it? Sure. Well, when I thought about when this book would be coming out and knew that it would be released in 2020, at the time, a couple of years ago, the only thing I was anticipating was that our election cycle (laughs) would be really contentious, uh, really. And so I, I was listening to how we were engaging one another and we being this collective voice of both outwardly in the media and online, but also just in coffee shops and around tables. I mean, there was so much division um, and contentious dialogue around disagreement and differing opinions. And I said, what if there's a different way? What if there is somehow that we might engage one another that's really in alignment with who God is and how Jesus walked the earth that maybe we're not necessarily missing, but we're not leaning into the power of life in Christ in a way that uh, might unify us more collectively. 
And so I wrote Humankind trying to get to the heart of reclaiming human worth. I truly believe that each one of us holds within us the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. And that inherently demands and commands this respect and this reverence. And so how do we do that? How do we see the worth and dignify one another? But also, how do we live this out in a way that points to each other's stories? Because I didn't write this book in a way that was like a classic leadership book. It's written in the form of these short stories. Some have called them parables. And they're all based on my own life. And so I really do believe there's a beauty in re-engaging one another's stories in order to build that empathy and to draw us into biblical kindness as well. Man, that's so good. Many people, I think leaders especially, may confuse kindness uh, with weakness. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, how do you define kindness in your book? And then what is the connection between kindness and our own stories? Yeah, that's good. So I think kindness, when we hear that word, and I don't know about you, but for me, when I hear the word kindness in our cultural context, I immediately had these images of the Mr. Rogers or Mother Teresa's of, of history. And I actually think it's deeper than that when we talk about kindness from a biblical perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just niceness, which I think is where we get tripped up. Uh, we could hold the door open for someone or let someone in in traffic. But biblical kindness is empowered by the Spirit of God. And so it goes beyond and is spurred on more than just our own effort. Um, It's given a power that can enact change uh, in one another and in relationship. And so when you really look at God as a kind God, right, we see God's loving kindness toward us. We experience Um, his perpetual care for his people throughout scripture. It's really just that he is redignifying his people over and over again. I even think about uh, the account in Hosea where he says, I've led you by the cords of my kindness. Right. That is how he enters into relationship with his people. So he's perpetually caring He's dignifying, and it's always pointing back to relationship. It's never isolated, but it's also extremely merciful. And I think that's what niceness lacks oftentimes. It's, it's a one-time event that we decide that we are going to engage, but it doesn't necessarily wrap itself in mercy. Um, and that's what I think is different about biblical kindness and what we see throughout Scripture is that it asks us to take risks and to be merciful toward one another. And kindness is oftentimes really meek and does leave the door open for us to be seen as weak sometimes. But I actually think kindness is more powerful than we give it credit for. And it actually helps us become more transformed. And that's where the story part comes in. This is not a one-time event. Um, Our stories, our journeys And we do have the ability to change and to become more unified as a collective people, not just as individuals. So if we can look back and see where we have learned how to be kind, where we have received kindness, Hmm. where we have learned about human engagement and why we believe or value what we believe or value, then we can, you know, in a Christian context, grow to look more like Jesus because of the kindness that's displayed in relationship. So I, I do think story is really important. I don't think we can talk about kindness in terms of just personal, isolated self-growth. Right. Because I think 
kindness requires a collective, and which is why it's so important for our current cultural moment right now. That's great. And what would you say to leaders? How can we practice kindness in our leadership? You've, you've given some examples already, just as you've kind of fleshed out a robust definition of kindness. But if we get specific and we're speaking to leaders, how can leaders begin to engage in this? Three quick things. I, the first I'm basing out of like a Genesis narrative. I, I think it's so telling when God asks Cain, where is your brother? I think as leaders, we are required to not just know, but to understand the concerns of those who we are leading as intricately tied to our own flourishing. Mm -hmm. And so I do think there needs to be a deepened concern, especially now for for those who we're leading to know the concerns of our people and to know their hearts and and what's going on. What what are they wrestling with? Where are the points of pain? Um, What are their hopes and dreams? And so that's number one, just to to know others' concerns. But two, I'd say to remain tenderhearted. I think especially now, it can become so easy in the midst of chaos mm-hmm. to become calloused in heart. And I think about Paul's words to, to the church at Ephesus, where um, he says, Be kind, therefore, and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so I do think it actually takes work as a leader to remain tenderhearted. And that's fostering the disciplines of joy and gratitude and solitude from time to time in order that our hearts might lead the way to set, um, set the direction and the trajectory for our people who are following in our footsteps or following our lead. And then finally, I'd say, uh, I'd call this the speaking strategy. And this isn't how one might present from a platform or from a stage. But I think it's important for leaders to understand right now, when are they speaking up and when are they remaining silent? Hmm. And to be very clear about what our leadership looks like in a public space, right? regardless of our line of work. Because up until this point, people have been looking for leaders to form them in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. And so especially now, I think for us to understand as leaders when is it that silence is helpful and silence actually gives me space to discern what's best and next for my organization or for the people a part of my organization? And when is it best to speak up so that I can essentially point everyone under my leadership in a direction that's more unifying and that's more hopeful and that really lets people know our core values? That's great. One of the things that you talk about in your book, uh, you talk about barriers that can keep us from moving toward people who are different from us. And uh, just wondering, how can we begin to take steps toward one another? And what examples of this do you have from your own story? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think there are three key barriers, or definitely probably more. (laughs) But three that I can think of right now are the barrier of fear. Um, And we all present fear differently. But I think fear of the unknown, fear of what we don't know or do not have experience with can be a huge barrier as well as our own busyness. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just don't have the time to be present to really another person Mm -hmm. or even my own life at times. And so I think busyness can really get in the way of us taking steps toward other people or other communities. And then our, our own pride, quite honestly. 
I can't remember the last time that I wanted to be wrong. And so, you know, like it, it's, it's not, it's not natural for us to want to admit that we have relearning or unlearning to do. And so our pride can really get in the way of healthy, wholesome and productive human relationship. But to counter the three of those, I think if we step into appropriate risk, where it feels like, I mean, if all is safe, and if we feel like we can really take a next step in relationship, then risk might be a really beautiful discipline to adopt in this season, just to see what might happen in the context of relationship and even shaping and forming culture. Building in margin would be the counter to our busyness. And for some, this season has been a uh, perpetual practice in margin. Yes, it has. And figuring, yeah, that's right. Like, what do I do with this time? What do I do when the time isn't what I want it to be? I might have the time, but it's, it's being filled with tasks and demands that I'm not setting. But really, margin can give us the space for more listening and deeper empathy. That's good. And without margin, we do not step into new learnings or um, perspectives that might open us up in different ways. And then finally, humility. I think it's imperative for every leader to sit at someone else's feet in some way and to be led especially if that person is different from you in some way. And I, I think that's a really beautiful practice to adopt. Say, if you're a subject matter expert, if you have some expertise, how are you intentionally putting yourself at someone else's feet so that you're constantly learning in a posture of humility? For me, this has happened in a couple different areas of my own life. One that I'm thinking of recently, my husband and I traveled to Rwanda just to learn more about the genocide there. and the history of the country, but also what that history means for our current cultural context here in America and for us, the American church. And it was interesting because we stopped in this one village with this group that we were traveling with. And we essentially heard the story of reconciliation from both the side of the oppressor and the victim. And essentially there was this, this village that was built by both oppressors and victims. And you have living side by side people who've committed just unthinkable crimes against the family members who they are building new homes with. Wow. And that, I mean, to learn from an oppressor period, especially in this context, that's a risk. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But to sit at the feet of someone who is doing the work to humble oneself to say, how can I learn more about reconciliation and peacemaking and unity from someone that on the surface, I may have nothing in common with was a really stretching experience for me. So that's one example. But another I'd say just really quickly was I I wrote about this in the book, but after Charlottesville back in 2017, just to put it simply, I found myself paralyzed by fear. And I realized that that fear was, um, at the hands of what it meant to be Black in America and what my relationship felt like at the time with uh, law enforcement. And so uh, my instinct was to uh, shrink and to almost um, say nothing because fear can do that. Fear can paralyze us and, and cause us to shrink. But instead, I had this instinct 
Um, and I really do feel it was led by the spirit of God to reach out to our local law enforcement officers and invite them over to our house. And long story short, um, two officers ended up coming to our home and we had this really underwhelming, but important conversation about what the environment felt like for the two of them as officers. But it gave me a chance to express my heart as well as a part of the community. And really what was maintained in that space was dignity and humanity. Right. Um, As opposed to seeing a role or a job title, I engaged with two human beings. And it's remarkable how leaning into risk in that way can um, call us back to the heart of God for His people, but also call us away from fear. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing those examples from your own personal story. Absolutely. Yeah. Since uh, the murder of George Floyd on May the 25th, we've seen just massive social and political upheaval. Why do you think at this moment, and why do you think so many of us white folk are just waking up to the racial injustice that our Black sisters and brothers have been experiencing for hundreds of years? Yeah, it's interesting. Even before um, I considered this question, um, my husband and I said to each other just on a whim one night, like, this, this feels different. And so this exact question has been uh, bouncing around in my, in my own head. And I think it's because of two factors. One, we're in a really interesting time in our world. I mean, we're in the midst of a pandemic. And so in many ways, our rhythms have been disrupted. Mm-hmm. And so there are probably things that we are noticing and events and issues that we're noticing in a different way than if we would have been carting our kids to school and going to work every day from nine to five. And we are just being uh, called to have a different kind of attention Mm -hmm. right now around issues that are important. Um, But also I think there's a a unique visibility to what happened with Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Rayshard Brooks, because they're all happening one really close together, at least some of the visibility in terms of video footage has been so explicit and has come out uh, pretty back to back in most of these cases where we have video. But there is a, it feels as if the masses are carrying the causes of these families and um, these individuals forward and demanding that someone cares about this. And I, I think for 400 years, the Black community, you know, um, when we study history, has been um, crying out in pain. Uh, you know, pick the era, whether it's the transatlantic slave trade or the civil rights movement here in America or Jim Crow, like whatever era you pick, there's been pain involved in oppression. And so I think many white brothers and sisters are just now waking up because of the privilege that they've not had to notice. Right. In many ways. I mean, it's one thing to learn about the history of racial injustice, and it's another thing completely to live it. And for many, they're stepping into the privilege of simply learning about it versus having on a day to day basis living out the realities of microaggressions and everyday situations that make it just a little bit harder to exist as as a Black person in America because of our country's history. And so I think we're at a unique time 
in a unique place with unique visibility and attention to some of these isolated instances that are pointing back to a deep, deep history that have been a part of forming our systems and practices that affect everyone. And so those are just a couple of things I think are lending themselves to our current moment. Yeah, those are great insights. I hear a lot of uh, white leaders who just feel so paralyzed by the fear of saying the wrong thing mm-hmm. um, that they're saying nothing or they're afraid to say something, right? What would you say to white leaders who are experiencing that paralysis? First off, I'd, I'd say take a deep breath because I do think there's wisdom in silence. Yep. I do. I, I do think there is a wisdom and a revelation almost that's formed in the space where we can reflect and take our concerns and her paralysis to a a space of reflection. But I would say eventually your folks need to be led Hmm. because this season, everything is an opportunity for formation, every single thing. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say maybe a chief concern might be that you'll say something incorrectly or offend someone And I'd say, that's the work. That's the work of reconciliation and peacemaking. It will never be perfect. Right. Never. Even if we read all the books and foster all the relationships and enter into all these new partnerships, if we do that, we will still do something imperfectly, but that's why it's worth stepping in. I'd say to do that also in a way that is in the context of relationship. I remember times in the past where it's been so honoring for leaders to invite my voice in the forming of a more collective voice Hmm. Um, because then there can be dialogue. Like, so say you're forming a statement or trying to craft something for social media to invite other voices into that isn't weakness, right? It's, it's actually really honoring. So to say, Hey, I don't know everything. Can you help me? You know, this is what I'm planning on saying, or this is what I'd like to say. Can you help me say it in a way that will be honoring and um, encouraging to everyone who might hear it? And doesn't mean it won't rub some people the wrong way. I think the nature of our moment right now, um, some of it, it might have the potential to invite people to have differing opinions. But I do think there's beauty in speaking in a way that's invited voices into that as well. And then finally, I mean, we've talked about this already, but the humility to just admit that this will be imperfect. Right. So I do think there's a fine line between wisdom and then uh, silence is consent. (laughs) Yes. So just to consider, is my silence lending itself to space for more wisdom to be fostered? Or is my silence pointing towards consent for something that I actually feel is unjust or don't believe in? Those are great. What do you think we can do? And I know this is the hard work, but what can we do? What are some steps that we can take to grow in anti-racism? Yeah, just like any good pastor, I have three R's and an I for you. Great. (laughs) It's like crafting a sermon. But uh, the first would be just to read everything you can get your hands on, especially right now, to understand why this current moment is so, so important. I do think to go back and look at our history is a really good place to start. So I've been telling folks, read some of the current work that's being put out there or that has been put out in the past few years, but also go back to what was written in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Like I'm reading a book by James Baldwin uh, right now, The Fire Next Time. And that's giving me really good context as to what he was wrestling with and how in some ways it hasn't changed much. Right. 
So it, it's helping build a bridge between, oh, like we are actually looking at similar patterns in our culture around race relations and uh, work of reconciliation that this has been a struggle longer than the year 2020. So I'd say read. And then two, again, relationships. I'd say who's missing from your circles Yeah. <laughs> to really do an honest evaluation of not just your leadership circles, but your personal ones. The work of unity and reconciliation has to be done and woven throughout not just our boardrooms, but in our, our dining rooms and um, our own families as well. And so to say, like, what am I making enough effort to... Uh, like I said before, sit at someone else's feet, but also to really pursue authentic and mutual relationship with someone. And that could be your very own neighbor. Now is the perfect time to actually get to know our neighbors if we don't know them already. And so um, what might that look like? And then exploring our own roots. And we might talk about uh, what that looks like later. But then finally, just to take a good hard look at our areas of influence and to say what power and influence does each one of us hold to actually enact change. Right. So if you're in charge of forming or creating policy, now is a great time to take a hard, uh, long look at those policies. Mm -hmm. If you're in charge of teams, now is a great time to look at the values and mores of those teams and your operating procedures and all that kind of stuff. Or you can do that with your family. So I, I just think if we are more intentional with our areas of influence, we might be able to stretch in our, not just our knowledge of anti-racism, but in our practice, in our initiative, in the way that we understand anti-racism as lived out as a part of our daily lives, because it's not just a, a moment. Right. This is, this is deeply embedded in how we're living in society right now. So it, it needs to become a, a daily part of how we live. You already made reference to this, but several days ago, your church posted a reflection exercise that you shared with your community. And I'm just wondering, could you share that with leaders who are listening to this today? Sure, I'd love to. Um, it's interesting how this came about because I was up late when I couldn't sleep. And I just asked God, what would be helpful for right now? I feel like I want to do something. And my heart is in formation. I love calling people deeper, uh, no matter where they are. And so um, I just I had this, this instinct to call people to examine their own lives. I mean, right now, a lot of our reactions are outward. What is someone else saying? How are we reacting to what that one person or that one leader said? So there's actually so much work to be done in our own hearts and our own lives. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because I truly believe the posture of our heart sets the pace and the overflow of our action and how we are living in the world. So I created this reflection. I called it Roots because I couldn't think of a better name, but it's actually, I think, been, um, I'm grateful that it seems to have been really meaningful to folks. And it's essentially just beginning a time of reflection, uh, 30 minutes or so in silence. And if you pray, I encourage people to pray Psalm 139 uh, verses 23 and 24, the search me and know me, God, test my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me, which I think is a huge prayer to pray for those of us who love to be right. Yes. And lead me in the way everlasting. And then I build in space and invite folks to listen. So silence is a part of this because I think we can, in our own reflections, talk in our heads to ourselves all the time. But are we leaving space to actually listen for the answer? So these are the questions uh, really quickly. The first one is, what's the primary emotion 
that I experience as I consider how racism has impacted my life? And what are the feelings that are rising as I step into the work of racial reconciliation and anti-racism? And I really just invite people to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the sources of those emotions and um, what God might want to speak to those emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just about experiencing them, but what's the counter-narrative uh, of truth towards those emotions? The second question is, where did I get my history? Uh, who taught it to me and who was centered in the narrative? And then on the other side of that, who was excluded? So this can be any form of history, your family history, your state history, your country's history. I know for me growing up in Texas, the way that I uh, was taught about the Civil War was a very specific narrative. The way that I was taught slavery was a very specific narrative. And so really this question is inviting us to examine what this version of history taught us regarding where we might fit in to that specific narrative. And this marks everything from what we celebrate, the traditions we have in our family, the values that are upheld. Uh, And so really the ask here is to allow the Holy Spirit what a next step might be in maybe re-exploring, but in some cases, undoing and retooling and writing that history um, as a supplement to what's the fuller narrative and how can it be more inclusive. The third question is, what's the history of where I grew up? What influenced the the decisions that you may have made personally surrounding where you live? Hmm. So your own city or neighborhood. It's fascinating. Until recently, I never even thought to research how my neighborhood came to be. Like who who designed how these homes were laid out and who could be included and excluded? How did that design, you know, for many that gets to redlining, how did that design Uh, form the education system and the quality of education afforded to people who live here. Right. The next question out of that might be, did you have a choice? Did you get to choose where you live? Did your resources allow you to pick wherever you wanted to live? Because many people may not have had a choice and that could have set a trajectory for one's life that's very specific. So here we ask the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to our neighbors. And perhaps here we ask, who is it hard for us to love? and why, who's not represented in our communities, and then how might we advocate or draw closer to someone in real mutually beneficial relationship. So this could be a really humbling question to explore, but uh, hopefully there's some good revelation there. Um, The next question is, again, what are your personal spheres of influence and authority that God has given you to steward? Because this really is about stewardship versus posturing or our own reputations. This is, are we stewarding well the resources, including the authority we've been given right? Um, in all aspects of our lives, not just at work, but in our friendships and our families and our industry. So here I invite people to give gratitude because I know for me, when I think about those spheres of influence, there are people who have helped me along the way grow into the person I've become. And so this is a great opportunity to express gratitude for those individuals who've encouraged us along the way. Then the question becomes, how can we give our influence away to underrepresented voices or even full communities? And what might that cost you? I think that's a key question because to give anything away comes at a cost. And we have to invite the Holy Spirit into that space of saying, I want to be willing to give something away. And the invitation there is that our identities might be regrounded and recentered 
in Christ. So just a couple of uh, additional questions. Where do you need to show up with your feet? And maybe that's to a peaceful protest, but maybe that's to show up and ask for forgiveness or to be led or to speak truth in love, uh, to be held accountable. Maybe this is a season to say, hey, I, I need accountability in this specific area. Would you be a part of that journey for me? Right. So this is where we can uh, have a moment of confession where the Holy Spirit might reveal things we've done or said or left unsaid. Uh, as we've considered the inequitable systems that we might be a part of. Uh, And here's a really great opportunity to receive God's grace toward us and to say, um, in my time of confession, um, I can also be fully receptive of God's grace that's available to me at all times. Mm -hmm. And then the question, just following up from, from this one, how will you commit to showing up differently in the future? And what can you make right for right now? Like, what can you do immediately? And then finally, just what time of day are you committing to learn and go deeper? And I actually encourage folks to set a a specific time weekly or maybe even daily to read, to reach out to someone that is a subject matter expert in a different area. But we make time for the things that are important to us and we schedule those things. We schedule the things we want to make time for. And so um, very practically, I encourage folks to put 30 minutes to an hour in their schedule to listen to a podcast, to read, to engage relationship. Yeah. And then the final step of the reflection is to look at all of our reactions to the last six questions and to say, what resources are still needed? Where are there gaps? And the invitation here is to make a list of three action steps that we're willing to take over the next three days in order to close those gaps, um, whether that's a conversation or a resource that's needed, or perhaps uh, a relationship where we're deepening in order to pursue community in our journey. So that's the reflection. And again, I, I recommend book ending it with silence. So even coming out of it, how might we end our time in silence as well? Mm-hmm. But some folks are doing this weekly. Some folks are doing this and modifying it daily. Some, some families are modifying this for their kids. And so the whole point really is to say, how might I take an inward look as I'm engaging outwardly to make sure that there's alignment and integrity with the way that I'm pursuing reconciliation and anti-racism work? That's so good. Thank you, Ashley. Really helpful. And just so appreciate you sharing that with us. Before you go today, uh, just wondering, where can people find you online and where can they get your book? Yeah, thanks for asking. So I love Instagram. I mean, I, I maybe love it a little too much, but um, <laughs> I'm at Ashley underscore Island on both Instagram and Twitter. And then anything I write or anything that I'm putting out in, in the way of an article or what have you is at AshleyIsland.com. And the book is available wherever books are sold. Well, thanks again for being with us and just appreciate all that you're doing, Ashley. Blessings uh, just as you continue to lead in the various areas of influence that God has given you. Hey, thanks for joining me for this interview with Ashley Island. If you don't have her book, look for the link in the show notes. I want to leave you with a couple of asks to help me continue to get this podcast out to leaders. The first way that you can help is by pledging at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash speaking of leadership or visit patreon.com and search for speaking of leadership podcast check out the different tiers and consider pledging you can support this project for as little as three dollars a month or get some extras by donating five dollars or ten dollars a month the second way to help is by reviewing the podcast on itunes 
After posting your review, make sure you email it to me at ellingwood.robin at gmail.com. I'll be drawing the name of one lucky reviewer who emails me, and I will send them a copy of Ashley's book, Humankind. Hey, thank you so much for joining me for our very first episode. I hope you'll listen in to the next episode when Todd Bolsinger shares what kind of leadership is required in this season that we find ourselves in. See you next time.